everyone who's staying tuned online on youtube and facebook we got a lot of comments uh we've got infinite content and jeb and army mobility officer we got quite a few folks uh uh solo monk is in the chat uh yeah absolutely uh y'all check out the art and music of solo monk he of course did the great graphic uh background that you're seeing on our youtube screen uh he did our standby music that you heard at the very beginning I really love some solo monk work. So uh, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, we were just wrapping up the main show talking about these incentives that Athens is giving, uh, you know, to kind of put a bow on that. I really do think that economic development is one of those things that has been skewed in such a way. There are there's there's other ways to do that. Uh, and if you're going to be writing checks for five six million dollars to developers why not write checks like that to employ co-ops worker-owned co-ops why uh, not put community benefits in those agreements right community benefits agreements you know jobs to move america and other organizations have been working hard on those kind of things why not put some strings attached why not say uh you have to have x number of living wage jobs that you provide uh why not penalize the employers if their employees have to rely on public assistance because they're not paid enough or not provided benefits. What about the environmental impacts of these developments and, and these stores? What about the union busting activities that may occur there and their labor law violations or, or you know, compliance? Uh, there, there's a lot of ways to look at economic development in a way that really centers the community first uh, and centers everyday working people first, um, that, as opposed to centering developers. Uh, so I have a done a lot of digging yet on this particular developer i did some quick google searching to figure out what i could see not a lot there uh which is interesting so you know i don't know all the backstory there i assume there is a backstory because uh, there typically is one so i just wanted to put that out there that's an example of what local government's doing and uh certainly in in you know my town and i really don't appreciate it gotta say don't appreciate it uh but we also wanted to talk a little bit uh, while we're waiting for uh, Jackie Simon of AFGE to come in. I wanted to talk a little bit about Huntsville. So as I mentioned, I do live in Athens. I've lived in Athens for a few years now, but uh, I spent my adolescence in Huntsville. I lived in uh, Huntsville throughout my middle school and high school years and uh, early 20s. So, you know, I lived there for about a decade. Um uh, 
if not longer. Uh, a lot of good memories in Huntsville, a lot of good friends, a lot of good people in Huntsville. There's a lot to love about Huntsville. Um, that said, the Huntsville, the city of Huntsville PR machine has been in overdrive lately. Uh, you may have seen some news that Huntsville did get demoted to apparently the second best place to live. It had been named the, the best place to live at one point, um, which I just really find baffling. I find it baffling because you're talking about a city with a sketchy local government, right? And that's not just my opinion. They literally won the Golden Padlock Award for their lack of transparency. Okay, that's the kind of local government we're talking about. Not just once, but twice. 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 So you've got a sketchy local government. You've got a dysfunctional school system. And that's probably putting it mildly. All right? Then you've got a violent police force with a history of discrimination and murder and abuse. All right? And that's, that's our government... That's our school system. That's our police force in Huntsville. It's business as usual. Right. And that's before we even get into the lack of public transportation, the lack of really any public services by virtue of being in Alabama, where, oh, by the way, let us not forget, we do rank at or near the bottom of everything. Right? So you can't put Huntsville in a little bubble and separate it from the broader reactionary state government and the lack of investment in our state. So the idea that a place with a sketchy local government, a violent police force, a dysfunctional school system, a lack of public transportation and other services surrounded by a reactionary state government is the best place to live in the United States of America, that's quite the stretch for me. But you know what I think we need, Adam? I think we need billions in investment for Space Command to come here. Yeah, if only if only that would happen, right? I think billions in federal dollars would definitely fix it. Definitely. Oh yes, only only more federal dollars. If only we could get more federal dollars. The small government dollars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. Like when they talk about Huntsville being the best place to live, okay? Like for who? For who? Is it for working class people who are being priced out of five points? priced out of their other neighborhoods is it the best place to live for those those folks or is it the best place to live for folks making six figures on the arsenal working on the war machine and no disrespect okay i know there's afge members out there no disrespect to you but there is a very stark divide in huntsville between the haves and the have-nots and again this isn't you know an isolated place. We're not on an island. We are in Alabama, where we are subject to laws from Montgomery. That impacts the quality of life here. So, you know, again, I find it hard to believe that there's only one city in the entire nation that is a better place to live than the city of Huntsville, Alabama. You know, a place that put a man on the moon but can't keep a teacher in a classroom. A place where the city's leadership rallies behind a convicted murderer. So, as you mentioned, Space Command. Let's talk about Space Command. Because uh, do we have our? Well, before we get on Space Command, let me just check. Do we have our guest yet? Or let me double check. Sure, sure. 
I'm not seeing them in the Zoom right now. Okay. Yeah, because okay. I, I don't want to get off on a, a rant about Space Command <laughs> <laughs> as we await our uh, public policy director from AFGE. But um, So there has been some big news coming down the pike about Space Command, which was slated to come to Huntsville, is was slated to come to Huntsville. Uh, for those of you listening outside of the Tennessee Valley, let me just say this, and, and before Tahira gives us some updates on this, uh, Huntsville, Alabama is the Pentagon South. Uh, Huntsville is heavily dependent on federal dollars. Between NASA and the Army and the broader military-industrial complex, which fuels the city's economy and the entire region's economy, frankly. Uh, so that's kind of the context in which this is happening, this Space Command decision. So it's not as if this would be like, you know, a brand new source. I mean, it would be a new source of federal investment, but it's not as if it's unprecedented, right? We've had NASA for some time um, and we've had the Army for some time and we've had Boeing and Raytheon and these various, you know, contractors that work in the defense industry. And so that's, you know, a huge part of Huntsville's economy. And uh, we've seen recent announcements about the FBI moving significant staff. Building a huge interdisciplinary training facility also along with our police department and along with Aaliyah. And boy, doesn't that just make me feel great. As a left-wing activist here in Alabama, to know that the FBI is sending thousands of people to my community. Um, Meanwhile, so none of the local law enforcement sends any data about hate crimes or their arrest statistics to the FBI. And so you would think maybe, maybe the FBI could say, if we're going to build a big headquarters in your community, you should probably email us all that data. You should probably send us that stuff that you're supposed to send us. You know, because we're a smart city. Right, a it's, smart city. It's probably a lot cheaper since they're always investigating the prisons like once a year. Right, yeah. That they, they figure just, it's easier if they just build a headquarters here. Might um, as well, right? Yeah, might because, as well. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's weird. Uh, and something that, you know, I wanted to mention is that in the 60s, Huntsville desegregated a lot peace, more peacefully and a lot more smoothly than the rest of Alabama, and that was in large part because of federal intervention. Uh, basically, the feds were able to use NASA and the defense industry as leverage against the bigots. And the, the local ruling elites realized that if they wanted to keep the economy going, if they wanted the federal dollars to keep flowing into this community, and it floating on those those federal investments if they wanted that to happen they couldn't cling to segregation any longer right and so the federal government did exert some leverage there and that's not to paint the federal government a rosy light that somehow in the 60s they were always on the right you know when it comes to civil rights by any means but that was an example and we've seen this time after time where <clears throat> the federal government has to step in and kind of force Alabama politicians to do the right thing. And so I can't help but think of that when we're talking about this space command decision, uh, because we've, we've gotten some news about that, right? Yeah. So let's talk about what that reason actually is that they are now reconsidering. And that reason is HB 454, um, which has been introduced into the Alabama legislature. Now, abortions are already illegal in Alabama. 
You already cannot obtain an abortion unless you are literally dying. Mm. Unless mm. you are literally dying. And there is only one hospital in the state that still performs DNCs. Wow. So if you are in medical <clears throat> distress, getting help is already very difficult. Right. This bill, HB 454, makes abortion murder. It means anybody who seeks or obtains or performs an abortion can be charged with murder. Wow. Sentenced wow. to the death penalty. Right, right. And you know what that's going to do? That's going to take this state where healthcare providers already don't get the reimbursements they need to support their practices, already struggle to provide services, already have their hospitals stretched to the max. They're leaving the state. Right. They are leaving mm -hmm. the state because they can't stay here and practice safely. Yeah, I mean, they can't even live up to their oath, right? To To help and to do no harm. How, how can you do that under such restrictive conditions? The idea that we would charge someone with murder. And frankly, who wants to move here? Right. If you are a person who can get pregnant and you are an age where you could get pregnant, why would you move here? Why right. would you subject yourself to it? Why would you even think about trying to have children on purpose here if you can't get the care you need? You know, and, and I think that's a good point because with Space Command basically the news was like there was some leaks to come out that the Biden administration is reconsidering whether or not Space Command will be relocated here to Alabama uh, or if it will stay in Colorado Springs where it's kind of already been. Um, and so that's come out. There's been a lot of chatter about it in Alabama politics, all the legislators and uh, congressmen and, you know, they're all, you know, talking about it. Basically, all the worst people you can imagine are real pissed off about it right now. And, you know, there some of the reporting indicated that it was in direct response to Alabama's anti-abortion uh, laws that are so outrageously extreme. Draconian. Draconian. Cruel. And, and the thing that the federal government has to consider is, can they in good faith require people to relocate here? Can they ask their employees to take a step down in their quality of life, to take a step back in their freedom and their constitutional rights by moving here, right? Because fundamentally, like definitionally, you're going to have less rights when you get here. If you're coming from Colorado and you come to Alabama, you are less free. You are less free. And you're going to suffer from the, the conditions of this state and the backwards laws that we have, uh, the, the quality of life issues that we have. So who wants to sign up for that? If you're in space command, would you really be excited to come to Alabama where your wives and daughters will, will lose rights, where you're a community Will, will be bare bones investment. Uh, your community will, you know, maybe you'll have a decent public school, but maybe you won't. It's, you know, it's, it's an interesting situation. And what I'm interested in, is there any will in the Biden administration and the current Justice Department to actually use this leverage to extract any hint of progress from the city of Huntsville and from the state of Alabama.
Because that's the other thing, right? You would expect at least some of our leaders would look at this and say, boy, this is a problem we need to do something about. Right. You know, at the very least, Huntsville leadership could take a look at this and say, we are most directly affected by this decision. We don't support this legislation. Right, right. They could take a stand. They could have an opinion. Right, they could. And and you also see Tommy Tuberville's being kind of singled out because of some of his antics and holding up appointments in Congress and just his rhetoric and antics overall. Uh, the city of Huntsville could come right out and say, Tommy Battle could come right out and say, hey... I don't agree with him. Hey, he doesn't represent us. We're more than that. He could say that if he if he believed it. I mean, hell, he could say it even if he didn't believe it. Wouldn't be the first time. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to see uh, what the responses are going to be from the big wigs in Huntsville and from uh, the big wigs in the state. They're real mad about it. But will they learn anything from it? Will they learn the consequences that sometimes playing stupid games gets you stupid prizes? Will they learn that? Will they prioritize safety for pregnant people? Right. I mean, the other thing I want to talk about here is that fewer than one-third of Alabama counties have a hospital with a labor and delivery ward. And that's where you want to move all these people to? You want to relocate an entire workforce to a place? Where there's no safe place to give birth. Right. Oh, we do have a caller. Uh, Infinite Content is on the line. Okay, if cool. I want to talk to you. Sure, yeah, Let bring him get, on. Let me get you on one sec. Yeah, I wasn't sure Hello. if he would even be able to. So welcome, Infinite Content. I, how have y'all been? Good, good. Thanks for thanks for calling in this morning. Okay, so I've been listening to you all. I'm like, geez, I think the only state that might be worse than Alabama right now is Florida. Because it seems that way. Immigrant... Um, legislation in because you all understand that agriculture is important to your economy mm -hmm. yeah uh, uh i just i wanted to riff on i'm gonna probably riff on a few things but uh desantis with his idiotic uh anti-immigrant um legislation he's going to wreck the entire state economy not part all of it because agriculture tourism hospitality construction those are the four big uh, things that generate Florida's economy. Now you don't have uh, a labor force. Right. Who's going to mm -hmm. uh, – because it's been proven that Americans will not work in certain agricultural jobs because they are too damn hard. The pay is too low. The conditions are too terrible. Uh, and, yeah, they don't want to treat people fairly, so they take advantage of the exploitation that they can uh, they can do here with vulnerable folks who are, you know, immigrants, people who are desperate, uh, people who, you know, worked in agriculture previously and so are, are maybe, uh, you know, more keen to do that kind of work. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, it's, it's going to have an economic impact, and that's where – Sometimes you see the conflicts within these people on the right wing is like they're pro-profit, pro-business, pro-growth, but their backwards ideologies sometimes bump into that. Because they're profiting like, okay, you were right. right. Yeah, they want to shoot, shoot the gun, but they're forgetting about the kickback. Right, right. And I'm like, you, I'm like, you're going to – and that's going to have a domino effect on national economy because now citrus fruit's not going to be available certain citrus fruit because we can still get stuff from California, but it takes prices will go up to transport things from California to um, the East Coast. It does from Florida to the uh, up north. 
Right. And what's always crazy to me is that these policies have already been proven out, right? Alabama has already implemented extreme anti-immigrant legislation before in 2009 with the the stop and ID law. And what we saw was, yeah, migrants flooded out of the state and then produce died in the fields Mm -hmm. because Alabama farmers could not hire local Alabamians to do that work. Right, right. Yeah. Is that plan a... Try and put all the prison um, prison um, population to uh, basically a new form of uh, slavery and have them working. That's a great I question. I don't think that's going to work. Because the closest prison to us, Limestone Prison, is actually a farm prison. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's, it's an interesting connection so you made there. Yeah, it's an interesting connection to make. Uh, and like, I, like the whole thing in Huntsville, I'm like, look, you. People are people will rather quit their jobs as opposed to moving to a regressive uh, region of the country. Because if I'm working hmm. in Philly, you say, "Oh, you're being transferred down to uh, Mississippi." Nope, nope. I'm right. being transferred. Nah, nah, nah. And that's not to uh, disparage um, the good people living in Al- right. Alabama. Sorry, I got fire. Um, no, that's fire okay. From, you're in the city. <laughs> Well, also, your tax dollars that you pay uh, from your wages and your jobs go straight into that state system and stuff, too. So you got to have to reckon with, like, all the stuff the state is using your tax dollars for, building TJ Maxx's and uh, being down on minorities. I'm just looking at uh, what's happening uh, in that state west, you know, that uh, you all always get uh, compared to. uh, Well, they always yeah, Mississippi. Like, they're they're wasting their— like the Brett Favre scandal, doing seventy-five million dollars of mm-hmm. uh, seventy-five million dollars of welfare funds uh, uh, misappropriated. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like I said, I, I said I was going to riff on a couple of things. You no, you're good. Jump in, cut me off whenever. Yeah, uh, no, I I totally agree. I totally agree, and uh, I think you know. I don't take it as as a disparaging thing to say, hey, if I'm in Philly, I don't think I would move to Mississippi or Alabama. I don't take it that way at all because it's just an honest reflection of the the situation. And I know some people don't feel that way. Some people are attracted by the low cost of living. Uh, But, you know, sometimes you get what you pay for. And how long is that low cost of living going to last? Right. How long is the low cost of living going to last? Because we already see gentrification and these other things happening right here in the state. Yeah, BlackRock coming and buying up whole neighborhoods and right. um, mm-hmm. price uh, gouging everybody. I'm like, if you're paying, you're already getting paid below national average wages. And somebody comes in and raises the rent on you. What, what do they want you all to do? Just want people to live it, uh, just live uh, in the woods? Then you right. get uh, caught by those... Um, those public trespassing laws. Right, uh, right. That, uh, but I do have a bit of good news to uh, okay. speak on uh, when it comes to labor. The Oakland teachers won their strike. Nice. Mm. Very cool. I haven't now, really followed that, uh, so that's that's great to hear. Yeah, uh, so they got the concessions that um, the support staff, they're getting more support staff, they're getting raises, and I think they're getting better conditions, but... Shout out to the Oakland school teachers. What better way to invest in our future than actually educating our workers? Yeah. Paying them to oh, No, no, no. We need to have the work. That's the thing. They want the workers just smart enough to use the tool, but not <laughs> yeah. smart enough to think beyond that. Right. Yeah. Just smart and, enough to pay them their tax dollars. And <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> just don't do anything else. Though. No need for critical thinking. 
Oh, and by the way, Iowa. Uh, what is Iowa's uh, thing where they're trying to take us back to the times of the jungle? Yeah, yeah, Iowa loosening these child labor laws, and I, I've heard that the Department of Labor has even said that uh, it could be unconstitutional or it could be illegal what they're trying to do. Because aren't they trying to? I mean, they're trying to get fourteen-year-olds into meatpacking plants. Yes, like very dangerous conditions. Go back to the times of the jungle. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right. I'm like, I'm like, uh, what next? We're going to just have uh, kids going to coal mines again? Yeah, well, I mean, that seems to be the the situation we're moving in, where we're regressing to the Gilded Age in the times of the jungle. We're regressing in terms of the inequality in our country, the concentration of wealth and monopolies. And now, you know, we're having to fight over child labor, which is a battle we thought we won 100 years ago. May I suggest that we go back to defenestration? <laughs> um, and... For those who don't know, defenestration means throwing somebody out of a window. And I think we should start start off throwing people out of third story, third story windows until so they get the lesson learned. We just move up higher floors. Uh, <laughs> they'll get the point. Until we get to the top of the five over one. Well, no, I mean, eventually at a certain level, um, it, it doesn't matter once you go out the window. Uh, it's not, uh, like I said, but you got, can't just do one person. You got to do a bunch of people and – those who survive need to understand. You're going. We're throwing you out of higher windows. So, well, and of course, this is all metaphorical windows for anyone listening. You not know, literal windows. Not literal windows. Not this suggesting. is all like in Minecraft. You know, is it's what we're talking about. But you know, no, I, I understand what you're saying. You know, there is just a uh, there is a viciousness to the ruling class in this country. Uh, where it does seem like they're just pushing and pushing and pushing people to the brink of survival, uh, and there just seems to be attacks coming from so many multiple directions. Uh, but, you know, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm glad you shared some good news with us today about the Oakland teachers' strike, because I think that is a good reminder that for all these difficulties that we're facing, when we as working people come together and we join each other and we have each other's backs, that we can fight back against this stuff, and we can make progress. We just have to organize. Absolutely. We have to organize. Oh, uh, by the way, um, in, in a standard solidarity with the um, with uh, the Writers Guild and SAG, don't watch any of these reality shows or game shows that they're going to be putting on during prime time in the fall. Make them, get them in their pockets by uh, the ratings and not watching prime time. Yeah, plus, there will be no writers, um, so it'll probably be some bad episodes, anyways. Right? Yeah. Well, like I said, they're, they're going. To, they go to reality shows and uh, game shows when um, they don't have. Oh, uh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, to, to kind of like cover up the yeah all the missing actual. And that's content. that's what they did last mm -hmm. go around, and uh, it actually helped. Watch some shows on the internet, like um, the Serves or uh, Leftist Mafia. By the way, I asked the people in Leftist Mafia if they can invite. Valley Labor Report on. Okay, um, cool. Also, right. trying to get you all on. Um, maybe see if you can talk with Ben Dixon and um, a couple yeah. other shows because I think that you all's message needs to be spread. And I'm always going to um, try and make the uh, smaller platforms get bigger. Awesome. That's what it's all yeah, about. Yeah, really for appreciate sure. that. Thank you for your support. Yeah, very much appreciate it. And yeah, we've now, got some I, I great probably, guests I, coming. I'm gonna jump let me off tell you now, and you all can. You all, I'll let you all rant, and uh, you know, um, but uh, 
let that one topic that you didn't talk about sit for another week or so and let Jacob cook. Let yeah. him cook yeah. on it. <laughs> Definitely will. Yeah. Definitely will. All right. Uh, solidarity. Thanks, Appreciate the Thank call, you. my Appreciate friend. Appreciate you. Thank uh, you. As always, yeah, appreciate Infinite Content, our, our big fan up in Philly. Uh, and yeah, we have some great guests coming up this summer. I just got to say, like, as a preview, um, I've got enough guests to book out the next few months. Uh, I've got like 25 people to get back with who all want to be on the show. All and right. they are some great, I mean, some great people, some uh, some scholars, some organizers, some leaders. Uh, some folks that I think you you guys will really enjoy. So we've got some good stuff playing this summer. Uh, really appreciate the support. If there's ever uh, you know other shows or platforms you think we should be on or uh, or that we should have on our show, you know, always let us know that. We do appreciate that very much. Uh, and we will be talking about the writer strike here in just a moment. Uh, ben, did we ever get our AFGE guest? I do not see them in the Zoom still. Huh. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, if we've got the meeting going and they're not there, they're not there. Uh, it could be a time zone issue. Um, I, I oh, yeah. wondered that as well. Uh, so we'll see maybe if they pop up at like 12 p.m., you know, instead of 11 a.m. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh, either way, I'm uh, not, not too worried about it. We've got a lot we've that we've been talking talk about today. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we've been talking some local stories with Athens and them paying a developer to bring TJ Maxx to town. We've taught Space Command. We've taught Huntsville's, uh, you know, as a ranking for uh, quality of life. Uh, so, yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about the writer's strike. It's the third week of the writer's strike with more than 11,000 Writers Guild of America members participating and shutting down produ productions across the country. The studios, which have seen skyrocketing corporate profits and executive pay, are so far refusing to budge and settle a fair contract for these workers. Issues include residual payments, work schedules, and staffing requirements alongside the use of artificial intelligence, or AI, which of course threatens the jobs of writers and many other workers. Writers in Broadway who were picketing to shut down a TV production were aided by members of my union, IATSE, shout out to the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, who refused to cross their picket line. We've seen similar solidarity among Teamsters and other unions. Uh, shout out to the band Weezer, who performed on the picket lines. I'm excited to be working their show as they come to the Orion in Huntsville pretty soon. So uh, those of you who are in the area, definitely come see Weezer perform at the Orion Amphitheater because they're pro-union. Uh, they're out there supporting our brothers and sisters on the picket line. We love to see that. What we don't love to see is Ken Jennings, host of Jeopardy, crossing the picket line. Uh, very disappointed by that. Uh, I kind of liked him as a Jeopardy host. He was kind of good at the game show thing, but uh, not a big fan of crossing picket lines. You're kind of you're kind of done with me at that point. So, uh, Ken Jennings, eat rocks. Uh, I did want to mention uh, Boots Riley had a great tweet about the uh, about the writer strike. He said he talked to some other WGA members who were thankful for the solidarity shown by IATSE and Teamsters during the strike. Whole production shut down with two picketers because Teamsters and IATSE won't cross. Writers mm -hmm. I've spoken to are definitely going to return the favor. 
The whole experience has been radicalizing for many WGA members, just like the IATSE strike authorization vote and ensuing calamity was radicalizing for many IATSE members. So, uh, so we're also coming up. Uh, they're going to need to negotiate contracts with DGA and right. SAG after soon. Right, yeah. Contracts for the actors and the directors expire in June. Uh, and that's going to be big. I mean, to think mm-hmm. that the writers could be on strike at the same time as potentially the directors and the actors. Haven't heard much about the directors. that We have heard about the actors, however. Uh, so on the subject of cross-union solidarity, actors, of course, have been showing up to the picket lines. Um, you know, that's been heartwarming to see. A lot of, you know, actors have been coming out to support the writers. And SAG-AFTRA, which is one of the two big unions for actors, announced this week that after their national board authorized a strike authorization vote, a general membership will hold a strike authorization vote. Uh, so... President Fran Drescher has been uh, encouraging members to vote yes so that they can build the necessary leverage as they uh, proceed with these negotiations because, again, the contract expires at the end of the month. Uh, Now, some of her earlier comments indicated that she didn't think a strike was likely of of the actors and that maybe some of their issues were not quite the same as the writers. Uh, But there's still a lot of parallels and they're still dealing with the same studio executives Uh, And I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the strike authorization vote turns out. But certainly if there's a resounding yes vote, uh, I think that could only lift the spirits of the writers and, you know, bode well for negotiations for the actors and hopefully put more pressure on the studios. And let's be clear about what the writers are asking for, right? Because I think a lot of people look at and here, you know, we want digital residuals, we want streaming residuals, and they think... Netflix shows make millions of dollars just by virtue of existing. But writers actually almost never benefit from any of those streams, from any of those residuals. So you can make a TV show, have it air five years ago, and then for whatever reason it blows up on Netflix. It just got added. And your check is still, you know, three cents that month. Right? How does that make sense? Right. How can And how does that turn into a career for people who are doing this. We're depending on their creativity. I mean, look at what happened during the pandemic. I think we really saw the value of creative and artistic expression in the economy. Yes. Right? Yes. How mm-hmm. can we expect these people to deliver that quality of content and not get paid a fair wage? Right. Right. I mean, and it's a deep professionalization of their career, like we're seeing with so many other folks and other careers. Um, you know, what used to be five to six month jobs are now f- five to six week jobs. And that's a huge problem is these so-called mini rooms mm-hmm. where you have maybe two or three people who get stuck together in a room six weeks before the production is supposed to start. And they're each responsible for a minimum of two to three episodes in a season. Right. Right. So it's th- not sustainable. And then you're getting paid the weekly rate for those five to six weeks when it should have been closer to 12 or even 24. Yeah, yeah. So they're seeing like direct impacts that way, you know, and on the subject of the residuals and the streaming and all that, you know, something that to me is just so egregious, like even if even if you're not particularly interested in this from a labor perspective, maybe you're just thinking about it like, hey, I'm a customer of streaming. Doesn't it suck that these platforms are literally taking programs off their streaming platform just so they don't have to pay the writers and other uh, employees residuals? Because that's what's happening, right? It's not as if it's a shelf on a store, uh, you know, like 
physical locations of stores, they have shelf space, right? We, we can acknowledge that, that, you know, they can't provide the stock uh, of everything at all times. But Netflix, HBO, it doesn't like cost them anything really to have this uh, material up on their website or on their platform. It's not, you know, an opportunity cost in, in terms of, well, if we show this show, we can't have that show, right? They can have theoretically as many shows as they can get. Uh, it's just whether or not they want to pay for it. And so they would rather you, the customer, not even be able to watch something that was made maybe just a few years ago. And so that's a huge problem too, right, for creatives. How does it feel to put your heart and soul into telling a story, mm. right? All of that production goes off to a production company. The production company sells it off to a streaming service. And the streaming service says we don't want to pay the residuals anymore. So this is just in the can. Right. And it will never see the light of day again. Right. That thing that you invested all of that energy into, all of those literal dollars into production of, yeah. is just gone. As if it never happened. As if it never happened. Yeah. Can't put it on your portfolio. Can't include it in your resume. Can't right. show it to anybody. You've lost those credits. Right. Right. You know, I think, uh, and I think that speaks to the ways in which profit seeking can undermine, you know, creativity and the arts. And so, definitely sending love and solidarity with the writers, wishing them much success in this fight. Uh, I'm proud to see IATSE members standing in solidarity with the writers. Uh, certainly looking forward to seeing what happens with the actors and, uh, you know, hope they can get a fair contract they deserve as well. So I did want to move on to, I have a story from the Department of Labor. Uh, you know, we mentioned a couple of Department of Labor updates earlier in the show, but this one, uh, I came across it and it just really stood out to me. So the U.S. Department of Labor announced a report finding nearly half of accommodations for disabled workers have no cost. The U.S. Department of Labor announced that a new report finds that nearly half of workplace accommodations made for people with disabilities can be implemented at no cost to employers. And of those that do incur a one-time cost, the median expenditure has decreased when compared to previous reports to only $300. The newly published report, Accommodation and Compliance, Low Cost, High Impact by the Job Accommodation Network, which is a service of the department's Office of Disability Employment Policy, analyzes survey data collected from employers from 2019 to 2022. The survey collected cost information from employers using online questionnaires, which increased the number and diversity of responses significantly. Uh, before 2019, they collected this information via one-on-one -on -one phone calls. So they got a lot more information in this particular report. In addition to gathering information about the cost of accommodations, the survey explored employers' motivations for making them, their effectiveness, and the benefits they produced. And the report includes the following findings. More than half of employers made accommodations to retain valued employees. 68.4% of employers said the accommodations made were either very effective or extremely effective after consulting uh, JAN. Another 18.3% of employers said accommodations were somewhat effective. That's, that's pretty good, right? 68.4% saying very or extremely effective. The indirect and direct benefits of making accommodations included retaining valuable employees, improving productivity and morale, 
reducing workers' compensation and training costs, and increasing workforce diversity. The report reinforces what Job Accommodation Network has repeatedly in its work observed, which is that accommodations for disabled workers are indeed a low-cost, high-impact strategy for supporting and retaining valued talent, explained Assistant Secretary for Disability Employment Policy Taryn Williams. The report also reinforces the importance of JAN's role in helping employers understand available options and implement viable solutions that work for both the employee and organization as a whole. An accommodation is a modification to the work environment or the way a job is customarily done to enable a qualified individual with a disability to enjoy equal, equal employment opportunities. Under the ADA, covered employers must provide reasonable accommodations for applicants and employees with disabilities when requested, unless doing so would cause an undue hardship. So I wanted to lift up that report and just kind of share that with folks that accommodations, they're effective, they help, and they're not costly. We don't have to freeze disabled people out of the workforce. Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes that's all that is required is just some accommodation. And that also just shows, you know, how many jobs come with requirements or come with stipulations that actually have very little to do with getting the job done. Right. That's how many point. retail positions have you seen that are customer facing that are primarily about like operating a cash register that also say you must be able to lift at least 50 pounds? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's actually because they want you to do double duty. It's because they want to run skeleton crews. It's because they want to extract from you as much as possible. Right. Right. It's not actually because you need to do those things in order to fulfill this job. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, and that's something that I, I think if you're in the job hunting mode and you look at these job postings, you'll see some really interesting things in there that are being required sometimes that has nothing to do with the job itself, um, like you said. And I think sometimes that is meant to exclude people. Well, just look at the uh, people beating the drum that we must return to work, even as we have discovered that remote work and working from home is often just as, if not in fact, more productive than right. working in an office environment. Right. Right? So why do employers care about having their employees in the office if they can do the same job from home? They want employees in the office so they can monitor them, so they can surveil them. Right. So they can... Control. Control so they can make every efficiency possible so that you never get a break, you never get a breather... You never get to just do your job efficiently, right? right? Well, well, they want to use that expensive real estate, too. I was right? going to say true. that and the real so estate. They're wrapped up in that. Good. That, yeah, that's wrapped up in it, too. That's wrapped up in it, too. But that's a great point. I mean, you know, remote work can be an accommodation for folks. And it frequently is. You know, I am a disabled organizer organizing in disabled community, and the number of people I know who have been able to finally transition to being able to support themselves... Mm in a career because yeah. they can work from home is significant. It's huge. Because those jobs finally became available. Right. Right. Well, especially with prices for childcare and uh, just, I mean, cars and stuff with everything so expensive, it's, it's extremely efficient. If you can work from your house, if you don't have to rely on as much childcare, if you don't have to uh, spend all this money trying to keep a car running, um, right. Well, let's talk about that, right? In the context of affordable housing, 
if the closest you can afford to live to your job is an hour commute away and you're yeah. losing two hours every day of your own personal time that your you're life. not compensated for, yes, right, in order to do this job that you could just be doing from home. Right, right. I, I mean, as someone who drives from Athens to Huntsville all the time for work, that commute, which frankly is not even a bad commute, you know, comparatively speaking, it wears on you. And, you know, that time that is drained, uh, that time you have to add into your schedule that, yeah, you're not being paid for. In fact, you're paying for it. You're paying for it in the maintenance of your car and in the gasoline you're putting in your car uh, and the insurance for your car, all that. So, yeah, I, I wanted to lift this up because, you know, I think it's, it's important that we recognize there are folks in our community who have disabilities who are valuable members of our society. And, you know, if an employer needs to make an accommodation, like, make the accommodation. And there hard. are guidelines for what is considered reasonable, right? When an employer, when an employee says, I am disabled and I require an accommodation, they enter into an iterative discussion process, right? There is a negotiation that happens there. There are guidelines that determine whether that request is reasonable or right. not. Right. So it's not just employees asking for whatever and demanding that with no guidelines, no accountability. Right. I mean, as as we we read from the Department of Labor here, they have the job accommodation network. Like literally they have an entire office of disability employment policy. Uh, employers are not out there by themselves. So, I mean, not that I think many employers listen to our program. Uh you're but they should. They should. You're an interesting person if you do, and I appreciate you. Uh, but, you know, employers can can find resources out there to do this and, and to do it. And in fact, find money to pay for those accommodations. Right. 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 Even when they do cost money, which, you know, this report says most cost less than $300, which is, you know, less than a week of pay in most cases. Right. right. And what's that worth to be able to retain that employee? Who has already been trained, who is already in the role. Yeah. What's the opportunity cost of letting that person go and having to fill that role? Right. Yeah. I, I think I think so. So uh definitely wanted to put that information out there and uh just, you know wanted to think about folks with disabilities in our community and how important it is that they be able to to work and participate fully in our community. And you never know if you're going to join the disability uh, population at some point. Boy, that is true. Disability does not care about your age. It does not care about your race. It does not care about your gender or sexuality. It can happen to anyone. And all of us eventually are going to require care. Right. All of us eventually require care. All of us require accommodations at some point in our life. And and you're right. We all require care. you know, we saw with COVID how many folks joined the ranks of the disabled because of long COVID and other issues. Uh, so, yeah, it's just, you know, it's a very relevant topic for working people, I think. And our next story uh, is a little different, a little interesting here, which is talking about weed and the Teamsters. Uh, marijuana policy and the Teamsters Union. So I wanted to mention this. Uh, alongside a couple of other little things here kind of in this arena. But I did want to lift up this press release from the Teamsters, which they titled Federal Legislation Needed to Bring Worker Protection to Nascent Cannabis Industry. 
The Teamsters are endorsing the Secure and Fair Enforcement Banking Act, or the Safe Banking Act, which today got a hearing in the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. The bipartisan legislation will protect workers and improve public safety by allowing legal cannabis businesses access to banking services. There are thousands of people working at cannabis proprietors in 38 states, including many who are who are our members, said Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien. These workers deserve a safe workplace that provides meaningful wages, health care, and access to retirement security. The Safe Banking Act will allow these workers to engage in a meaningful partnership with their employer by removing archaic and nonsensical regulations that the industry is currently subjected to. And again, that's from Teamsters President Sean O'Brien. Without access to traditional banking services, legal cannabis businesses are forced to operate almost entirely in cash. This puts workers at risk of robbery and violence, enables wage theft, and makes it harder for public officials to enforce state and local regulations. Cannabis workers also often find it onerous to secure mortgages or access to basic banking because financial institutions are overly and unfairly cautious about the source of their income. The Safe Banking Act will create a safer and more secure work environment for the cannabis industry, said Peter Finn, Teamsters Western Region International Vice President and Food Processing Division Director. It will bring one of our country's largest cash crops out of the shadows and into the mainstream, making it easier for the industry's many highly skilled workers to stay in this craft and build long-term prosperous careers. So, of course, uh, the Teamsters, I really appreciate them putting out this press release and, and speaking up on this uh, industry. They are representing more and more workers in the cannabis industry. And, of course, the Teamsters, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, actually represents 1.2 million people in the U.S., Canada, and Puerto Rico. Uh, so, shout out to the Teamsters for putting this out there because there is a definite need for legalization done the right way. Uh, that means done safely, done in a way that uh, does not leave people behind. So that's something to talk about, actually, is these really onerous restrictions actually only encourage the black market to continue to exist, even in right. places where it's been fully legalized right. recreationally. Many places decide it's not worth the hassle. I'm already basically operating on the black market. Why do I need to get all of this licensure? Why do I need to be above board? What's the point in the storefront? Right, which obviously... Which then means there is less clean product coming out into the community, right? Yes, and, and it also obviously means like less regulations to protect workers, right? Because as a worker in a legal workplace, you have certain rights, doesn't mean they're always respected, but you have them. Uh, not so much in the black market. And so there's a need to legalize marijuana. It's way past time for that to happen in this country, across this country, even here in, in states like Alabama. Uh, but there's a need to do it the right way as opposed to reinforcing exploitative work conditions, which has been happening in some areas. And also keeping the market closed to people most impacted. Right, right. How about the folks who have been impacted by our racist, discriminatory, stupid marijuana laws? How about giving them first dibs on this industry as opposed to big finance capital, which is coming in and has, you know, really taken over the industry in a lot of places in this country? You know, mm -hmm. the, the old image of like 
hippie farmers doing this. And it's not that's not the case anymore. It's These, venture capitalists, right? It's now. <laughs> venture capitalists. It's not the hippie farmers. They're they've been kicked out of the business and, and and you know priced out and gouged out. So yeah, I'd love to see some of these people that have been incarcerated uh, for marijuana crimes have the first dibs at uh, being able to do these legally. And not just uh, first dibs in terms of like getting the required paperwork or permissions, but actual investment. Right. Oh, These that's, people yeah. have lost Much. their lives, their time, their working ability to being incarcerated. Let's and repair some harm. Yeah, let's repair some harm. Let's repair some harm. Um, you know, why not have worker co-ops in as a key model inside the marijuana industry? I think that's another option, too. Uh, rather than these, you know, hierarchical uh, enterprises. And, uh, you know, there's a lot we could do to do it the right way. Um, Just imagine that $5.7 million investment. Right. Yeah. Right? That, 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 that one, little city, money. That one, one little, little city. That one little city for that one little strip mall. Right. Right. What could you do with that? Um, and so, you know, the Safe Banking Act, like, that's like bare minimum kind of reform that needs to happen. Like, yes, at the very least, we need to make sure that this industry where it exists is brought out into the open. Uh, that folks are not relying on cash only, that you have regular banking. So, you know, workers are protected so the businesses can operate uh, soundly. And, you know, we need more unions in the marijuana industry. I think that's something else that's really big. And I really appreciate the Teamsters for for going after some of these workers and, and moving into that industry because, you know, it is difficult under the current conditions because of the lack of the Safe Baking Act. And big ups to the Teamsters for holding up like so much of the labor movement, man. They're all over the place with drivers and like everything. Yeah, yeah. We love our Teamsters brothers and sisters. The Teamsters are, are definitely doing a lot of good work. And, um, you know, I'm excited to see what President Sean O'Brien is bringing with his administration. Uh, you know, we'll see, you know, how things go this summer with UPS negotiations. That's going to be the big, big news out of Teamsters uh, with the UPS contract expiring this summer. So, you know, stay tuned on that for sure. Uh, but yeah, really appreciate them and appreciate their work to bring some much needed reform to the marijuana industry. And, uh, while we're on the subject of industry, you know, we love to highlight bosses behaving badly on this show uh, because oftentimes, you know, on local news, if you tune in, think about how much of local news is mugshots and arrest reports and often poor people, maybe innocent maybe guilty maybe it doesn't matter they're they're going through a bad period in their life they've been arrested and that's what we highlight on local news right but how how rare is it to to get the counter balance to that where not just working people uh, are ashamed or you know you know spotlighted for their mistakes but what about when bosses act bad how about a little bit of accountability there um so we do like to highlight bosses behaving badly, and I uh, wanted to highlight this report out of Florida. The U.S. Department of Labor recovered more than $114,000 in back wages and damages for 100 employees who were den denied overtime by an Orlando-based hotel staffing agency. 
Investigators with the department's Wage and Hour Division found that a Florida hotel staffing company failed to combine hours worked by 100 employees at several locations, paying them straight-time rates for all hours worked, including overtime hours. By doing so, the employer failed to pay the required time-and-a-half overtime premium for hours over 40 hours in a work week, which is a Fair Labor Standards Act violation. So, in back wages and liquidated damages, they got 57177 in back overtime wages and 57177 in liquidated damages. And we do have a quote here from the Wage and Hour Division District Director. Uh, the hard work done by hospitality industry workers allows guests to enjoy their accommodations. Often they work long hours and deserve to be paid all their legally earned wages, including overtime. When employees work at more than one location, their employers must combine hours worked at all locations to calculate overtime wages properly. The Wage Hour Division is committed to safeguarding workers' rights to get uh, paid their rightfully earned wages. And y'all can correct me, isn't this, it's not a criminal offense to steal wages, is correct. it? It's all, yeah, correct. so here you might have more yeah. <laughs> insight on so, that. But. So you are breaking the law when you do that, but there are not criminal penalties for wage theft, unfortunately. Um, I mean, sometimes you could get like into RICO cases or um, because inevitably if an employer is stealing wages, they're almost always doing other shady financial things. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, committing wire fraud, for example, or bouncing mm. checks intentionally. Right. Uh, there's almost always other bad behavior attached. But wage theft by itself is not actually a crime, even though wage theft completely outstrips all other forms of property theft, which are criminalized. Right. Absolutely. And that's that's exactly what I was going to say, that, you know, wage theft is a massive problem in this country, but you wouldn't know it from listening to mainstream media uh, who wants to scare you about crime waves. They want to scare you about shoplifting at Walgreens. Uh, and you're supposed to be terrified that there are shoplifters at the local Walgreens. But there is wage theft. And there's nowhere to report that. There's nobody to help you with that. You just have to be brave enough to ask the questions and push for your rights. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, if you're in that situation where you believe you're being denied overtime pay or you're experiencing wage theft, absolutely document, document, document. Gather as much evidence as you possibly can. Find anything you can in writing that supports your case. Uh, Always emails. keep copies of your pay stubs. Keep copies of your pay stubs. Absolutely. Uh, email can be very helpful in building a paper trail. And, you know, once you feel like you have a pretty good bit of evidence to back you up, uh, you should talk to the wage and hour division of the Department of Labor. And I know that's a scary thing. Um, and it's a risky thing in an at will employment state such as Alabama. Uh, but you absolutely should be paid what you're supposed to be paid. And it's just egregious that so many employers out there commit wage theft and get away with it. Uh, so I did want to make sure we mention that the Fair Labor Standards Act requires that most employees in the U.S. be paid at least the federal minimum wage for all hours worked and overtime pay at not less than time and, a, time and one half the regular rate of pay for all hours worked over 40 in a work week. So 
you can go to the wage and hour division and find uh, more information about this. Again, whether you're an employee or an employer, they try to make it easy for you as an employer to not break the law. Mm-hmm. They even have an app. They have a new timesheet app for Android devices. Now, I can't tell you exactly what that app does, but hey, I'm glad the Department of Labor has, has an app. I'm glad they're doing that uh, because the more we can educate people about their rights and how to exercise their rights and protect their rights, I think the better we all are. So, Ben, I'm going to guess we never heard from AFGE, right? I have not. So okay, cool. Know. I just wanted to check in. Uh, you know, maybe maybe we had Get some miscommunication or something. Uh, that's okay. That's totally fine. Uh, we've got just a couple of final stories here, and we're going to wrap it up. I did want to mention some big news out of Los Angeles. Uh, there has been a historic victory among striking or yeah well striking yes striking organizing strippers in los angeles uh kim kelly has a great article out as does in these times uh both of them have done good work covering this so uh star garden dancers in los angeles are now the only unionized strippers in the united states unionized sex workers Wow, oh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah I Not guess... Not just strippers, but right. you and I sex workers. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. That's huge. That's huge. And I believe they won their election... Um, unanimously. Unanimously, without any uh, opposition. It was a 15-month effort. And so the strippers of Star Garden's Topless Dive Bar in North Hollywood, California, have achieved their goal of union recognition. And their union is Actors' Equity... Uh, and so that could be a big win for Actors' Equity in, in terms of breaking into that industry as well. Uh, because when one group of workers organizes, other groups of workers always follow, mm-hmm. right? And so I think this news is going to spread like wildfire among, uh, you know, exotic dancers, strippers, sex workers of all kinds and all stripes. I think this is going to be big news. Um, and I really think that's so cool that they have done this. And that they band together. You know, in a lot of cases, exotic dancers are actually not employees of the clubs that they dance at. Um, Mm. They are 1099 employees, so they have to pay a cover charge just to get in and work. And then they are able to keep a portion of all of their tips. There is usually a requirement that they split their tips with other employees of the club, like the DJ. Right. And so if you don't tip out the DJ and tip the DJ well, you'd never know if you're going to get the songs you need. Right, right. It's just so, there's so many sketchy things that happen uh, in that industry, just from the little bit I've read. And so, uh, you know, if ever there were some workers that needed the collective organization and needed protection yeah, for sure. of a union and that solidarity, right? Of being sticking together. Of yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Because I can imagine, especially, you know, in a 1099 contractor kind of situation where it's probably really competitive mm-hmm. and there's probably a lot of, uh, division that the bosses try to stir within the workforce. So I think that's just, you know, fantastic that these workers were able to do it. Um, the owners did finally withdraw all their election challenges, which means that the union has been recognized and within 30 days, we'll have to nice. meet 
so Star Garden will have to meet with Act- Actors Equity within 30 days to negotiate a first contract. Uh, the dancers were reinstated. Uh, so that's that's worth noting too. Um, always love to see workers put back to work uh, after being illegally taken out of work in retaliation. So yeah, it took 15 months. Uh, but it's really, really cool, really great news to see this. Um, I've been intrigued by, I posted the In These Times article on my Facebook, and I've been kind of intrigued by the, the folks re- responding to it and reacting to it. It's a pretty eclectic mix of people um, because I think it speaks to an eclectic mix of people. There are people who have, you know, more familiarity with this industry, and then there are folks who can just imagine, like, how difficult it must be to work under those conditions and how important it it must be to stick out, you know, stick up for one another and protect one another and, and to build a union. I'm really excited to see what they do next, you know. Yeah. So they're not actually the first unionized strip right, club. Right, right. Uh, the first unionized strip club was actually the Lusty Lady based in Seattle. And they actually decided um, to unionize. And then they became a workers' co-op. They actually bought out the club, okay. and now they are employee-owned and operated. I was not aware of that. I, I did know that uh, Star Garden wasn't the first, like, ever. Um, but they are the only ones, I guess, but now. But they're now currently the only union right, shop. But, because the Lusty Lady is a workers' co-op. Right. That's even better. That, yeah, <laughs> really. So, like... That's, that's really cool. I did not know that. I'm, uh, I'll be really interested to see where they go next. Me too. I, I just think about like my old uh, high school job working at Walgreens and how different it would have been if I had like actual, uh, you know, skin in the game with the profits of the sure. company and how like I would I probably wouldn't have had you know three assistant managers and one manager and one and me being the only clerk on the floor you know feel right. like it would be a much more like we're we're all in it together y'all equitable yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely all those... <laughs> absolutely uh so yeah I mean. We'll see what happens with the the contract negotiations. I think it could set a precedent for the industry. Uh, and like I said, I, I think there will be, you know, strippers all over the country who hear about this and are, are hopefully going to have conversations. If there's anybody at the Pink Pony who wants to come talk to us, please do. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Have some organizing conversations. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should not go there to have that organizing conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, you know. Well, maybe that's how we open shop. the door. We can go do like a board meeting there. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You just have to clear it with your wife first. You know? Right. Yeah, I should probably do that. Um, yes. Organizing only. Right. Of the it's, day. It's, it's all Sorry, boo. I was having my one-on-ones and you know, my follow-ups and building my list and committee. Yeah. Making absolutely. sure they're adequately supported. Absolutely. So, uh, yes, solidarity with the street in Los Angeles. Way to go. Uh, really, yeah. we, we want to celebrate your union win. That's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. So uh, on the subject of Kim Kelly, I did want to mention that she's got a new article out in The Nation, her May Day Paris Dispatch. And I really can't rec- recommend that enough. Uh, I really just found it a, a well-written written article. Um, not surprised. You know, Kim Kelly is a great writer. Uh, it was a very well-written article, but she was actually in Paris on May Day, and so she got an up-close-and-personal view of the riot police there in Paris. Um, you know, their May Day was quite uh, rowdy, uh, I guess you could say. As is tradition. As is tradition <laughs> in Paris. Um, they're not a big fan of the oligarchs there, and uh, they're willing to stand up and demonstrate about that. 
And of course, this comes on the heels of President Macron, the neoliberal uh, uh, who has raised the retirement age in France against the wishes of the people and, you know, has used every trick in the book to get it passed. And essentially against the normal procedures of parliament. Right, right. That's my understanding is, yeah, like every little trick he could pull out to try to get this through and shove this through, that's what they've done. Uh, which indicates that obviously there's not broad popular support for this, even within the government itself, much less the people. Uh, and so, yeah, it's it's a shame to see anytime our workers, our fellow workers anywhere, move backwards. And this is a step backwards for France. Uh, but, you know, I think the article that Kim wrote really highlighted that there's a spirit of resistance that is alive and well in Paris. Uh, and, you know, we'll see where that leads and what that turns into. The unions were very uh, vocal and out in full force against this reform by Macron. Uh, they were out in full force on May Day. Uh, so, we'll, you know, we'll see. Uh, but I am an internationalist. I believe that workers of the world have more in common than we have differences. And so I think what happens to, to workers in France, you know, is important to us over here in the United States and vice versa. Uh, so, yeah, definitely recommend Kim Kelly's new article, uh, her May Day Paris Dispatch. And before we wrap up, uh, I just wanted to ask if we had anything to say more about the Alabama Democratic Party. Um, I am working on a, a an article with some activist reactions to the party and its decision to eliminate the youth, LGBTQ, and disabled caucuses, uh, among other caucuses. I believe the Native American caucus, the Hispanic caucus as well, Asian and Pacific Islander caucus. So there's been um, you know, a lot of discussion happening in Alabama progressive circles about this. And I am working on a piece with some, some great activist reactions from both sides. I will, I will give you that. I spoke to someone who is who is actually happy with this. Uh, don't agree with her, but, you know, asked her opinion. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know if y'all had anything you wanted to add on that, chime in, before we wrapped up. Uh, Man, I'm just tired. Yeah. It just makes me tired. It just makes me so tired that we already, I mean, we went through this process once and instituted those caucuses specifically because ADP was not in alignment with bylaw guidelines established by the Democratic National Convention. Right. Right? So we've already been through it. We've already had the activists who say we need representation at the table right? And we're going to do things the right way. We're going to go through the courts. We're going to organize. We're, we're, we're going to negotiate. We're going to come in good faith and to have the rug ripped out again. Right. It's like, what's even the point? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people asking that. And, um, I, I know I heard from some folks that are planning a forum, like a town hall, to actually just kind of bring that up. Like, what do we do next? Where do we go from here? You know, what should our relationship be with Alabama Democratic Party? Um, because it appears to be a party that wants nothing to do with quite a lot of us. Um, it appears to be a party that actually wants nothing to do with the DNC. Or victory. Or victory, for sure. <laughs> That's Certainly. for damn sure. I don't uh, think there's any interest in actually operating as a state party at this point. Yeah. We can't even mm. feel... 
candidates for half of the open positions. They can't the even ballot. send emails or press yeah, that, releases. That's what I was going to say. I was like, and this after the diminishment of the party su- to such a severe degree, like, yeah, like it's not like the Democratic Party's in a thriving shape or anything. No one, no one will dispute that. And it's like to break it up even more and to have get more names on oh. the ballot. And you know, I'm not endorsing any specific party one way or the other. But the fact is libertarians even though they got a much smaller portion of the vote even though they have much less funding overall across the state they actually managed to field more candidates than democrats in the last alabama and isn't that embarrassing if you're if you're joe reed right you're randy kelly shouldn't you be embarrassed by that that people who have fewer people and have less money can get more people on the ballot and now I'm just going to come right out and say this. There are people who would think that I am being um, discriminatory by even suggesting such a thing, that they should be embarrassed by those poor results. Uh, and I, I can tell you, it has nothing to do with that. Just look at the look at the last decade and tell me, has the Alabama Democratic Party been relevant? Has it been viable? Has it been functional? Has it been competitive? Has it had a working website? Can they tweet for some, some of the time? Can they email? Because... And it wasn't always like this. Right. There was a time when, like, the Democratic Party of Alabama actually had some legs under it. Yeah, at one time it was it was the party in the state, right? And uh, uh, now you can say it was a little different ideologically. And it was because, you know, Alabama's long been dominated by the right wing, whether they called themselves Democrats or Republicans. Uh, uh, Many of the Republicans today were Democrats, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, But you're right. And, you know, it's not that hard to do some of this bare, bare minimum level of competence that folks are asking for. Um, I get that the Alabama Democratic Party is not going to do and say all the things that I want. I recognize that. Like, I know who I am and what I'm about, and I know what they are and what they're about. I recognize we're going to have some differences now. But I don't think it's asking a lot to be competent. I don't think it's asking a lot to at least try to send an email every now and then to at least, you know, do some work. There's something else I want to say, just to say this. I feel like Joe Reed has characterized these caucuses as being all or even majority white caucuses, right? But all of those caucuses had black and brown people in them, were chaired by black and brown people, right? Because people are not a monolith. You don't just have one identity and that's what you stick to, right? You can be black and queer. You can be black, queer, and disabled. In fact, I know a lot of people who fit that description. Right, right. Uh, and I really am offended that Joe Reed looks at these caucuses as somehow disempowering the black vote. Right. And, you know, also on that subject of, you know, people are not a monolith. Uh, black folks aren't a monolith. And Certainly. I think, you know, it's a mistake to assume that somehow Dr. Joe Reed and the ADC and, and Randy Kelly are like the end-all be-all for black political representation in the state or black political opinions for that matter. Um, Again, you know, I'm just a straight white guy born and raised in the South. I'm just a country boy who read some books. But um, And we love you, Adam. Well, I appreciate that. (laughs) And the thing about it is, if I 
were any other identity, I would still be asking the same questions of, so when's the last time you won an election? So what are you doing for me in Montgomery? What are you running on? What's your platform? How are you going to help me as a working class person? How are you trying to make my life better? How are you trying to make Alabama a better place for us? Uh, those are fair questions to ask of the ADC and the ADP. Whether you like who it's coming from or not, right? Just, I mean, I, I think that we're going to have more conversations about that, I'm sure, moving forward. And uh, I look forward to some of the town halls and other stuff that activists are planning because I know there's a lot of folks out there having these conversations about, you know, what should we do moving forward? Uh, because we can't just sit back and hope that ADP gets it together to build some kind of competent opposition to the right wing in the state. Magically with, you know, less than a year to go. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, obviously we see what that's about. Uh, and I think many of us have, Plenty of reasons to be skeptical of the DNC. And I'm just going to tell you to the liberals out there who think the DNC is going to come in and save Alabama. Bless your sweet little hearts. Yeah, I'm that's sorry. A, that's a strange illusion to have these days. It in is. My, in my opinion. Right. I, I think it is, too, because for one thing, they don't give a damn about us because what do we provide for them? Well, it's and it's obviously they need to grow the base of the party and include more people. Whether whether that means and uh, I wouldn't like this, but more conservative people or more liberal people, they need more people. Certainly, but this more is youth. definitely this is definitely not the way to go about it. You know. Yeah, I, I got I got some criticism for some comments I made about it because I said you know it seems like Joe Reed and Randy Kelly want a party that is pretty much church going black folks over the age of sixty of a particular moderate to conservative politics. And nobody is suggesting that that faction doesn't deserve representation Absolutely or a seat not. at the table. Absolutely not. They're a part of the coalition, and that is perfectly fine. Like, that's good. They should sure. be part of the yeah. co coalition. They should be part of the conversation. Part. part. A coalition is made of many parts. But for the last parts. 50 years, <laughs> Joe Reed has been able to handpick members of the executive committee. Right. Right. I mean, and so, if you are realistic about being a political party and being a political leader, the idea is eventually you want to win and you win by math and there just aren't enough church attending moderate politics, black folks, 60 years and up to win many elections in Alabama. I love them. I want them as part of my coalition, but they alone cannot win much in Alabama. And from the outside looking in, what is Dr. Reed doing to expand a coalition that can actually fight the Republicans? And that reflects what Alabama needs. Right. Right? And reflects the, the, full, the full diversity of our state. Right? Because not everyone goes to church. Not everyone's over the age of 60. Okay? And not everyone is being represented in this state. In fact, I would argue most people in the state are not currently being represented by politics. Yeah, if you just look at how many people vote in general, you'll you'll see that it's mostly minority rule around here. Well, right. also look at how the districts are drawn, right. right? Look at who else is attached to your neighborhood, and is that, 
you know, actually representative of the places where you operate in your day-to-day life. Right. 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 And and see, again, if we had effective opposition, we could be doing more to fight this kind of gerrymandering and the way these districts are drawn and all that. But, you know, for the last decade, the Alabama Democrats have been an afterthought. The Republicans have had a supermajority. They control all three branches of government. The only thing that ever slows them down is when they argue amongst themselves. Truly. And I'm sorry, but I can't. Or when there is widespread, large-scale citizens organizing. Yes, yes. Right? that is the and only alternative. And that never comes from the party. No. I say that as an organizer who is working on those issues. That support never comes from the party. Right. And, and you know, we've talked at length here on this show about the lack of support for labor. And, uh, you know, I got some pushback because I called out the Democrats for not supporting labor. And was told, well, of course they're supporting labor. You're just not looking hard enough. That's what I was told. That, you know, just need better glasses or something. I just need, yeah, I just need better glasses, man. I'm just not looking hard enough. Which, t- you know, I'm sorry, but I'm a pretty committed labor guy. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think most of our... If viewers... I can't find it... <laughs> yeah, you do You do a lot of that work. I, I mean, I, I will, I will it ain't that, that I... Your... Right. I, it's not that I'm not looking for it, right? So if I can't find it, that's that's your problem. Not my problem. Not labor's problem. Y'all are the yeah. ones wanting votes. And I think to point out that most of our viewers, and I think most, and most people are workers, you know, they... Uh, they live under. They're not millionaires. Um, you don't have a million dollars to jump uh, to dump into a super PAC. I, right. All, everybody's listening to this. I highly doubt we have a ton of millionaires in the audience. But that means that you have to represent yourself still, and that may be hitting the pavement or getting involved in some other way, um, rather than because we we don't. Yeah, we're not going to win with the the billions of dollars. Right. Yeah. You, we you have we have people power. We have people power. Uh, That's the only thing that we have. Uh, We can't sit back and hope that Democrats in Montgomery or in Washington fix it for us. We can't hope that the Republicans fight each other enough to distract themselves, to keep them from hurting us. We can't rest our hopes on that. We have people power. And so that's... Just look at what happened in Montgomery this past Tuesday, right? Yeah. That was, you know, almost 300 people, I think, showed up. Right. That was a remarkable display of solidarity and people power there. And, um, you know, I think... And it wasn't like the party was, you know, sponsoring buses or gas carts for people to get to Montgomery. No, no. People did that because they wanted to. And with no help from the Alabama Democratic Party. Uh, And that's the thing. And, you know, that's, I guess, my closing words on this is just that I know that there are a lot of good people in this state who are doing good work people who are justice-minded, people who are community-minded, whatever arena you're working in, whether it's labor or social justice issues, criminal justice issues, whatever the issue may be, there are good people out there doing good work, trying to make this a better Alabama for all people. Uh, And so I encourage you to keep that going. And we all have to keep talking with each other and working together and building a stronger people's movement that can fill in this void. Uh, because we we deserve better. We deserve better in the state of Alabama. We deserve representation that truly reflects working people here. We deserve leadership that is facilitating our participation. Absolutely. 
right? We should have leadership that wants us to be involved, that is making opportunities for us to get involved, that is supporting us when we are using our voice. Not actually criticizing us and saying you should keep your mouth shut and don't be too loud. Right, right. Again, the name of the game is addition and multiplication, not subtraction and division. I'm just going to leave it there, Oh, folks. man, that's elementary. <laughs> We're just going to go elementary. Mathematical. Mathematical with it. It's the teacher that's right. power going there. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, folks, we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up today. Uh, hope y'all enjoyed it. It was a little different episode, you know. Jacob should be back next week, and and will be back to uh, your regularly scheduled programming, so to speak. Uh, but really appreciate Ben and Tahira joining me today. Uh, it's been fun. I hope y'all have enjoyed it. We've talked some Alabama politics. We've talked local politics, Department of Labor strippers marijuana you know an eclectic mix of topics today uh so yeah i hope y'all enjoyed it i just want to encourage y'all to stay tuned to our website tvlr.fm uh you can find some of our articles there uh including some of my thoughts about the alabama democratic party and political engagement in the state that i published a, a couple weeks ago if you want to check that out uh and also wanted to remind folks about the event in Birmingham that is happening on Tuesday, the 23rd at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. Again, this is uh, from 5 to 7 p.m. and it is for the nurses, uh, National Nurses United, AFL-CIO, and other organizations. Uh, I believe Alabama Rise is involved. A lot of good organizations are involved in putting, putting together that community town hall on worker organizing and healthcare justice. So definitely wanted to lift that up. Uh, and finally, if you are so inclined, you can check out our store at tvlr.fm slash store, or of course you can donate at tvlr.fm slash donate. Uh, we really appreciate all of you who listen, all of you who do like and subscribe and review us and all of you who of course donate because, uh, without our donations and without our sponsors, we can, we could not do this program. So we really do appreciate it. And if you, you know, appreciate and, and value independent working class media in the South, uh, media that is by working people and for working people, uh, definitely consider chipping in a couple bucks. Tell your friends about us. Share it on social media. However you can help. It means a lot to us. And with that, I'm going to end it. Uh, ben and Tara, do y'all have any final words? Thanks for having me. I've had a great time appearing and I will not be a stranger. Don't be. Don't be, for sure. <laughs> the same for me. I appreciate being up here. And uh, all you lovely commenters and some of the people that are new that joined us today. Yeah. Hey. Just tell somebody about us. That that's, it helps so much. I'm going to give a special shout out, actually, to Ben, because he helped us with the sound last Sunday. So thanks for being a pal and oh, really yeah. showing up for the movement. Hey, and big ups. There's so many young people at that rally. That's what really made me uh, happy to see just like a lot of youth and men, the next generation. Like, good, Big ups to them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Love to end it on good news. So <laughs> way to go, young people. Way to go. <laughs> Way to go, the good folks who are showing up for our We're community. We're pro-young people. We're taking Absolutely. dangerous stances yes. up here, y'all. Yeah. That's right. The youth, we're for them, not against them. So, uh, yeah, we appreciate everybody listening. Y'all have a great weekend, and all power to the workers. Solidarity, y'all. Solidarity. Solidarity.